Today's Bible reading comes from Romans 1, starting at verse 16 and going to verse 32. It can be found on page 911 of the Church Bibles in the leaflet or followed along on the screen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like the mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I'd just like to stay, say as we start, um, I didn't pick this particular passage for Mother's Day, so don't take this personally, mums. Uh, this just happened to be the second passage in our series in Romans. Uh, and as we work through it, just to recap, Paul introduced things last week for us. And now what he's going to do, uh, having introduced this idea of this gospel or good news, is he explains in the next really two and a half chapters why the good news is necessary, why we actually need this news. And so the picture he paints is fairly grim. Yes? Yes. So, warning, you're in for a little bit of a ride. Uh, I'll try and lighten it up at a few points, but we'll see how we go. You can tell me whether I've succeeded. Also, there'll be an opportunity at the end, uh, time willing, uh, to ask some questions if you'd like, or come and grab me as we pack up, and I'm happy to uh, try and answer the questions uh, as best as I'm able. Can I say, lots and lots of 
uh, stupid answers. No such thing as a stupid question, though. Uh, I'll try not to give you too many stupid answers. Just ask your questions and I'll see what we can do. During the week, um, I've been reading a bit of my Bible called the book of Numbers. Uh, has anyone read Numbers recently? It's a, it's, it's a happy book, isn't it? Uh, I was reading it out to the kids and uh, one of them said to me, you know, the God of the Old Testament's got real anger management issues, yes? And I don't know how you felt this morning as Eliza read for us, the wrath of God is being revealed. You kind of go, whoa. Not many of us here, I imagine, when we think about the stuff we love about God, would go, yep, his wrath and anger. And I'd like to suggest that I think part of the problem is that we confuse it with our wrath and anger. If you're anything like me, uh, sometimes you get angry over things that it's actually right to get angry over. But you do it in all the wrong ways, and the outcome of your anger is just to compound things and make things worse. Anger doesn't generally achieve what we actually want it to achieve, and so often it's tainted by self-interest. But sometimes when we're the one that is actually the object of anger, it's not fun, is it? Maybe you've sat in class... And the teacher has just lost their nut at you. And teacher, you don't ever do that, do you? Maybe it's something in a relationship. You've done something, said something. Or maybe you've forgotten that it's Mother's Day. It's only 11.41. You've still got time after the service to ring mum, you know. You've been the object of wrath that you actually, when you're being honest with yourself, you acknowledge that you deserve it. And so that anger, that wrath, makes us feel incredibly uncomfortable, doesn't it? Helpless. Particularly if that person has some degree of power over you. When it's your boss that is levering their wrath at you, that's a whole different thing. When it's a toddler... It's funny. No, no, us parents, we took our kids very, very seriously. We didn't laugh at you having tantrums or anything like that. You guys just knew how to do it in public to shame us. But anyway, we have to acknowledge, though, I think, that there is a right place for anger, isn't there? Anger in itself is not necessarily bad. I listen to the radio and these days, for about the past two years I think it's been, we have listened to story after story after story in the news and current affairs programs about the Royal Commission into sexual abuse. It is right to be angry. When you hear about these things, when people have told me about some of the things that have been done to them, it is right and proper when you hear about these things, when you are subjected to these things, it is right to respond in that way. When innocence is destroyed, when beauty is defaced, when trust is betrayed, when glory is stolen, anger in itself is not the problem. It's what we do with anger and what anger does with us that makes us a little uneasy with it. 
The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 tells us that in our anger, do not sin. Can you see the implication here? That it is actually possible to get angry in the right way. But experience probably tells me and you as well that anger plus my human heart with all my sin and frailties rarely produce the outcome that God would actually want. And so we are hesitant when it comes to anger. And so I don't know, when you read that the wrath of God is being revealed, did you want to get up and walk out uh, thinking, maybe I'll come back next week when they're talking about something happy? Well, probably skip the next four weeks of church, I think. Uh, you'll get to the good stuff at the end of chapter three. No, it's really important that you are here next week. Because what we need to do is understand why the gospel is good news. Is it not possible that God has the right to be angry? That God that we read about in creation who created all things perfectly, who blessed it, who put humanity in a unique and privileged position within creation as his representatives in his image. Is it not possible that God has the right to be angry that that humanity takes his creation and defiles it? That takes that perfection and corrupts it? That takes all his gifts... And denies him as the giver. That defaces his beauty. That attributes motives to him that are far from glorious. That seeks to supplant him. And it's not just back in the beginning. Because the Old Testament is the story again and again and again of humanity doing this to God. And not just Israel, but the nations as well. Not just the Jewish people, but the Gentile people as well. We see in Scripture, I think if you are being honest, that God has every right. Actually, justice demands that he be angry. And we're not very comfortable with that because we, if we are being honest, must acknowledge that we are justly the objects of that anger. So let's look at it. Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. This word wrath is intensely personal. This is the kind of wrath that maybe you experienced. I had a brother who was a couple of years older than me. Uh, My brother and I are quite different in temperament and my parents made us share a bedroom for many years. Parents, not a good idea sometimes. Uh, You've got to pick your one. Sometimes that's a beautiful thing. Other times, less than beautiful. Uh, If I was making something, Andrew's delight would be to destroy it. Uh, if I was building a sandcastle, he would kick it over. If I was building something in Lego, I'd come back in and it would be all crumbled into pieces. And it's just, that is the experience, that personal indignation. You have taken something of value to me. 
and destroyed it. God is not here flying off the handle and having a tantrum. God is justly indignant that his creature denies their creator. And we should, when we read these words, be terrified. There should be a part of us, even if we know the gospel, even if we know God's answer to this, there should be a part of this that actually totally destroys us. That God would be angry. And it's no good saying, you know, that's the God of the Old Testament. Who speaks of hell more than any other person in Scripture? The Lord Jesus. He describes God's judgment, God's anger, resulting in people cast out into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's serious. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and maybe you're exploring Christian stuff uh, and maybe you're thinking, hey, wait on. This whole judgment thing, I'm not happy with that. I, I object, really. But I'd like to suggest that before we react and walk away from this, we actually need this. And I think you actually need this. Let me explain why. When you're on the receiving end of injustice, do you not cry out, this is wrong, I want justice. When you're perhaps listening to the radio and you're hearing what's happening in Syria or Afghanistan, at different points, at different places around the world, and you're saying, when will there be justice? If you put God and his judgment aside, there is no justice. And your craving for it is just a wish, it's a hope, it's a dream that probably will never be realised. But we know that there are things that demand justice. Humanity agrees that there is right and wrong, even though we might want to deny it with our heads, we know in our hearts there are some things that are always wrong. And you don't get that from common consensus because lots of different people from lots of different areas, lots of different cultures across all over the planet, all different times agree. It's not just a cultural thing. It's because God in verse 32 has given us an awareness of his moral decree. And so even though we might react with our heads against this idea of God as judge, we know in our hearts that we actually need it. Why is he angry? Well, Paul goes on. Rest of the verse. It's being revealed against heaven, from heaven, not against heaven, from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness, literally not wickedness, but unrighteousness of people. Okay. Paul here is dividing our relationships into two categories. And our first one he talks about in terms of the problem with this relationship is godlessness. It is a vertical relationship where we are not giving God his due. We are not acknowledging who he is. 
And then that vertical relationship has horizontal implications. Okay? It's our relationship with God is to work itself out. Jesus says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. So the vertical is meant to translate into the horizontal, but denying God in the vertical translates in that relationship with one another and what Paul talks about as wickedness or unrighteousness. Now, unrighteousness is not some kind of fancy religious behavior. Unrighteousness is not meeting the standard, can I say. Now, I want to illustrate this. And I thought, where else to go to divide this congregation smack down the middle? Uh, There is toilet etiquette, is there not? Okay, are you or are you not unrighteous to leave the toilet seat up? I'd like to suggest that the natural position, the way God intended things to be, was that the, the natural position for a toilet seat is up, okay? And if you'd like to sit on it, you are to lower the toilet seat, sit on it, and then return it to its proper upright position. Okay, who here agrees with me? Guys, if you're not putting your hand up, it's because the lady's next to you. <laughs> there is a bathroom righteousness, a toilet righteousness, isn't there? Yes? Okay, and all the ladies in my house would agree that probably Daniel and I fall short of the mark. We are in breach. We are unrighteous on the rare occasion that we forget to put the toilet seat down. But as I explored the whole area of toilet righteousness, I worked out, uh, courtesy of the UK, um, uh, the Telegraph in London, uh, there's actually a... I'm going to educate you ladies this morning. There's a urinal righteousness as well. Someone has put the Ten Commandments of Urinal Righteousness down. I'm going to give you a few of them just so you can get a picture. Ladies, you don't know what you're missing out on by not having urinals. Number one, thou shalt not use thy smartphone. I don't know why it even occurs to someone that actually talking on the phone while you go to the toilet is an issue, but... Uh, thou shalt not provide musical accompaniment is number three. So humming or singing along is probably unhelpful. This is one that is truly scary. Thou shalt not maketh small talk. Don't talk to the person next to you. What I'm trying to say is that there are rules. And whether the one I like here is number eight, thou shalt not go hands free. Uh, <laughs> There are rules. There are rules. And some of us fall short. Some random journalist made those up so we could all laugh and preachers could use them as illustrations. Uh, it's there. There it is there. Urinal etiquette, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and uh, you can look it up online later if you'd really like to find out what the other ones are. I'm sure you will. Uh, but when you break these rules, there's an element of who cares? But when you break God's laws, that matters. I incur the wrath of the women in my household for toilet unrighteousness. But on a much more serious note, and much more justly can I say, human unrighteousness incurs the wrath of God. Because the core of human sin is this denial of this relationship with him. Paul continues, this wrath of God being revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness of people, they suppress the truth by their weakness. Now, what is the truth? You go on just a verse or two further down in verse 19. Uh, It is the truth about what may be known about God. 
his eternal power, his divine nature. And Paul tells us that the heart of human sin is rejecting God. That God has actually made himself plain. That God has actually revealed himself. So the objection that appears, uh, hey, I didn't know anything about God, so why am I guilty of suppressing it? Well, Paul actually tells us in verse 20, look there, he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his internal power, uh, eternal, not internal, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Paul is saying there is enough in creation, there is enough in the wonder of the world that God has made for you and for me to know that there is a God on whom we are dependent, to whom we should give honour. And so he actually holds us to account in verse 21 for not honouring, for not thanking, for not worshipping God. He says that should have been where creation led us. When I was at university, uh, one of the times, um, I'm a bad student, I have to keep on going back, uh, maybe to learn what I didn't learn last time, but I was studying human anatomy. It's a privileged thing that physiotherapists got to do, and we got to play with people's bodies. Um, after they'd finished using them, by the way, can I say. Uh, and one day I was there with, uh, with a friend, Kristen, uh, and uh, we were looking at uh, this dissected shoulder. Okay, so we had uh, basically the, the upper quadrant of this person on our table. And as we poked and prodded and moved everything around, I was just struck, even on a, uh, a large level, what we used to call gross anatomy. It is gross anatomy, can I say? Um, but I was struck that how God had put together this incredible human structure, that we have a joint in the shoulder that is both incredibly mobile as well as reasonably stable. We have been designed in this beautiful way. And I looked and I saw the fingerprints of a designer. And Christian said, it's a shoulder. I don't know what you're so excited about. As a Christian, through the eyes of faith, I could see God's eternal power and divine nature and be led by his spirit to thanksgiving. She looked at it, not as a Christian, and said, it's a shoulder. I don't know what you're so excited about. And the Bible tells us that this is the universal human thing. That in verse 18, we suppress the truth. In verse 23, it says, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. We swap God for a false God. In verse 25, it tells us that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. This is what humans have done and it is universal anthropologists tell us there is no atheistic culture every culture they've gone into across the world worships but the only people who worship the true god are the ones who have come to know him through his word everyone worships you might be thinking actually to tell you the truth, I've got lots of friends who don't worship. You know, they don't go to church, they don't bow down to idols, they don't do that kind of stuff. But let me just illustrate with a quote from David Foster Wallace. This man is an atheist, 
And he acknowledges that in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And so what he's actually saying is not that everyone does religious stuff, but that everyone has a source of control, a source of meaning, what they look to for significance, what gives their life shape, how they work out what is good and bad. Everyone has something at the core of their being, at their heart. And Paul tells us that the universal human condition is that we look and see in creation that there is a God, but we don't want anything to do with the real God, so we go searching for others. And Paul Tripp says it like this. He says, this is the belief that life can be found outside the creator. It is the hope that true spiritual peace, rest, contentment, satisfaction and joy can be found somewhere else in the creation. Paul tells us, not Paul Tripp, but the Apostle Paul tells us that creation is designed to lead us to the creator. So those little things give us a taste for something that only God can satisfy. But we stop at the little things. And this is my theory about midlife crisis. Is you get to the point of your life that you see that the little things never satisfy. You never get contentment you never find true spiritual peace you never find rest and satisfaction because you've got those things and you've now seen through them and so you go searching for different things midlife crisis so what happens humanity denies god that has then massive implications for what happens with our relationships with one another. Some of the scariest words of scripture, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over. Verse 28, furthermore, just that they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. The word that we translate, gave them over, is the word that is used for Judas giving over Jesus. It's a word that can mean betray or hand over into custody or deliver over to your enemies. And what Paul is teaching us here is that God in his righteous judgment says, fine, if you want to live without me, I will hand you over to the consequences of that choice. And he gives us three. One is that we will be enslaved to things that are not God's. Let me keep reading for you from Mr. Wallace. Remember, this man is not a Christian. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. And that's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, 
you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud and always on the verge of being found out and so on. We serve what we worship and anything but the true God will enslave us. And that then leads us to the next handover into false worship, into false thinking. The Bible teaches us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But if you don't acknowledge God, you don't even get to the beginning of wisdom. And so Paul tells us, thinking that they were wise, they became fools. It's not saying that they're stupid. But you cannot understand how life truly works if God is not the centre of your system of thinking. There will be all sorts of gaps, all sorts of inconsistencies. Think about morality. Why is good good? What reason, if God is not standing behind it, why is your good truly good? Or is it just what you like? Is it just a matter of opinion that your good could be someone else's bad and their bad could be, their good could be your bad? You're left with all this kind of weird thinking, but we can go back and say good is good because God says good is good. And I rest on that because good is in line with how he made it. Good is the way he intended it to be. And we see that as God hands us over into the third one of this degradation of our life he speaks of sexual dysfunction he speaks of societal dysfunction he speaks of family dysfunction do you love how the fact that he slips they disobey their parents in there god actually sees that as a serious thing we think it's who cares oh yeah mum and dad god sees parents should be obeyed but we see we see here that sin takes us down it takes us like a whirlpool down into the depths of degradation to the point where we get in verse 32 that people know god's righteous decree we have this inner sense of what is right and wrong that those who do such things deserve death they not only continue to do them but approve of those who practice them and so we see a society that denies god is one that then endorses each other's sinfulness and rebellion so where does that leave us? It's pretty bleak, isn't it? Not a lot of smiles as I'm looking around this morning. It's pretty bleak. But can I say, this is a great truth. What does it give us? It helps us understand our world. If you were here at nine o'clock, you would have heard Richard Early, who led our service. He stood up. And he shared a little story about how he'd worked in aid work in Africa. And he said he'd been there a week and he'd seen the systemic corruption that just overran this country. And he realised that no matter how much aid, how much expertise you threw at this problem, it would not change. Let's bring it home. Are there not issues in our society, our civilised Western Australian society, 
not Western Australian, Western, comma, Australian. We're South Australian. We don't have convicts here. <laughs> but are there not issues that we try again and again and again and again and we're told... If only parents were better parents, if only our education system and we see things move around, only if we had the money, the resources, we could solve these problems. Romans 1 tells me that the problem is not primarily one that can be solved with our resources. Better education is great. I'm all for it. Better health care, better all those things. It's good. But the problem that is at the heart of the issue is a problem of our rejection of God. More affluence doesn't solve the issue. The issues are still there, even though we're better off than we've been in a long time. It tells us that the issue is spiritual. And not only that, it gives us an insight into why we have a society that is very, very religious. This is probably more for the Christian people among us this morning. Very, very religious Everyone says they believe in God, but no one wants anything to do with the God of the Bible. Have you noticed that? And so you go talk to your average person. Who here believes in God? They put their hands up. Who here believes the God of uh, Jacob, uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? The one who led Israel out of Egypt. The one who sent his son to live and die and rise again. Who believes in that God? Oh, numbers drop significantly. And the more you add more detail out of scripture, the less likely they are to agree with you. But Romans 1 teaches us that we have this spiritual awareness that God has revealed it, but our natural tendency is to repress it, is to hold it down, is to put it elsewhere. And thirdly, it tells us that even though our world is flawed, we can still see God in it. Even though beauty is corrupted, there is still beauty and we can still see it. So we can see our world, but then we also see our need. 1969, a couple of years before I appeared on the scene, uh, this was a bestseller. Actually, it was a bestseller in 1972, but it was written in 69. I'm okay, you're okay. It was a self-help book. It was designed to pat each other on the back, to G each other up and go, oh, look, there's nothing wrong with any of us. I'm okay, you're okay. But if we're honest, and we were writing this book now, what would we call it? I'm not okay, and you're not okay. That's what Romans 1 teaches us. It teaches us about our need that is so beyond our capacity to meet it. It tells us that we are justly under God's righteous anger. And walking around saying, I'm okay, you're okay, it just doesn't work. We can talk ourselves into it. But the reality of it is, if God is God, we know that we fall way short of his standards. And so what that should do for us, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have put our faith in God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, through that good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus in your place, is it tells you 
that you, Christian, have no grounds for pride. There is nothing you contributed to your salvation other than your sin. Sometimes people would think that if Christians were to write this book, they'd say, I'm okay, but you're not okay. They feel the fingers pointing out. But we are those who have God's word. And this tells us that apart from the grace and mercy of God, we are so not okay. And so what that should do is give us a deep humility, an abiding humility. We recognise the depth of our need and the fact that God's grace went beyond. It's like Jesus climbs down into the pit of our degradation and he boosts us out only to remain in the pit himself. That is our need. And as we see it, we rejoice in his grace. Because the Bible tells us that the righteousness that we have, the righteousness that Eliza read for us out of the start of the passage today, the righteousness that comes from God that is received by faith is a gift by God freely given.